Glad you're here. Happy Sunday to you. Are you glad you're here? With God's people, get to sit under the teaching of God's word and get to sing praises to the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we get to uh, witness a couple of baptisms today. So I want to just tell you right up front uh, that uh, plan on staying about 10, 15 minutes um, after the service and get to enjoy testimony of God working in the lives of two people. Um, I've titled this sermon today, Equipped and Empowered to Please God. That's what, I, that's what I titled it on Wednesday. We've got to get our title to Kelly so it can get in the newsletter on Thursday. And oftentimes by Wednesday, before Thursday, I hardly even know. Um, I don't have a word on paper. So it could be that sermon title, uh, but it could also be Faithful Unto Death. Faithful unto death. Um, and today's passage, is, um, as Lynette just read, is a benediction. It's verse 20 through 25. And, um, and we're just going to focus on verses um, 20 and 21. But I want to highlight something the author says in verse, what? In verse um, 22. Because we've been in this book for how long? Um, this is, I think, this is our 26th sermon. That's half a year. And this is 13 chapters. And this is what the author says in verse 22. He probably should have said it in chapter 1, verse 1, but he says it at the end of the book in verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. 26 weeks, briefly. So I'm going to go ahead and take advantage of that, and I'm going to speak to you briefly this morning, and we're going to actually go till about 11 o'clock. How's that? We're going to speak briefly. Uh, so this is a benediction. Uh, this, is a, this is the end of the book where he kind of like, he wraps everything up. And we're going to um, wrap this book up really by focusing on two verses. What's a benediction? A benediction is a God-given, gospel-shaped word of blessing. Benediction comes from the Latin words good and speak. A benediction are, is they are good words. They are gospel words. They take God's promises and recast them into expected blessings. That's what a benediction is. It's a, it's a blessing that includes God's promises. Benedictions teach us to expect what only God can give. And the Bible is filled with them. They remind us that Jesus is better than anything or anyone that we could give our lives to. God's last words to us in the Bible are in Revelation chapter 22, 21. And it's a benediction. And the words are this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Is there a better benediction than that simple benediction? Is that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. A benediction can be spoken over someone or it can be prayed over someone or a group of people. We incorporate benedictions into our everyday life. We include them in letters and emails. We have a tradition in our family when we do birthday dinners that everybody around the table, um, we haven't called it a benediction, but I'm going to be calling it that from now on, where we actually give a blessing. Uh, we tell them something about uh, something uh, of how we see um, God's grace in their life. We pronounce a benediction a blessing over them. We write them in birthday, graduation, or sympathy cards. 
We speak benedictions over our children before we put them in bed. We use them to express what our hope, what our hopes are that God will do for other people. These gospel-shaped blessings are meant to remind us of all the benefits that we have in Christ Jesus. And oftentimes a benediction includes a charge on how to live our life. I think I mentioned this last week that a very good friend of mine, uh, a gentleman that led me to Christ, the first person I heard the gospel from um, many, many years ago, his name is Chuck Cook. And I just got word from my friend Kirk Yamaguchi, um, I think it was a week and a half ago, that Chuck has pancreatic cancer and he's being sent home from Lutheran Hospital and he is in, um, has hospice in the home. And my hope was that I, is I could get down there this weekend to see him. And, um, and I got a note from a good friend of mine, Scott Stapp, that, that he's in his last hours and, uh, and that I, I can't go down and see him. So I wrote him a letter. I wrote him a benediction, and I want to share that benediction with you to kick off our service today. I said, Dear Chuckins, how it grieves me that I have not prioritized our relationship over the years. You, by the grace of God, have impacted me as much or more than any other human being. I heard the gospel with clarity for the very first time from you. And not only did I hear the gospel from you, I witnessed you living it out. One of my hobbies these days, Chuck, is going to the cemetery and praying and walking around and reading gravestones. I want to stare death in the face and be as, and be as prepared as possible for, the, for when the Lord decides to take me home. One of the gravestones that I saw this week had the words, faithful unto death. And I thought, that's it. I want to be faithful all the days of my life. Chuck, you've been faithful. And the Lord has used you and your life in mighty ways to transform the lives of so many people. I wanted to see you this week. But it seems we're running out of time. So this letter may be a farewell for now. I'll see you on the other side. Make a tea time for us, would you? I would imagine the courses are beautiful in heaven. I love you, Chuck. And then I wrote out this prayer, and if we could just use this prayer to start our service. O merciful God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, in whom whoever, whoever, whosoever believes shall live, though he die. And whosoever lives and believes in him shall not die eternally, who also has taught us not to be sorry as men without hope for those who sleep in him. The death of your dear son, Jesus Christ, has destroyed death. By the rest in the tomb has sanctified the graves of the saints, and by his glorious resurrection has brought life and immortality to light. Receive, we pray, our sincere thanks for that victory over death and the grave which Jesus has obtained for us and all who sleep in him. Keep us in everlasting fellowship with all those who wait for you on earth and with all who are with you in heaven. In union with him, who is the resurrection and the life, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, 
world without end. God's people said, amen. There's value in benedictions. We learn to value benedictions when we know what it costs for us to be able to have a benediction. Jesus gave a benediction to his disciples immediately after his resurrection. In John chapter 20, verses 19, 21, and 26, he said, peace to you, three times. Why peace? And why after the resurrection and not before the resurrection? Because Jesus had to receive our curse for us to receive his blessing. That he took our sin so that we can be ever blessed and united with Christ. On the cross, Jesus essentially heard, may the Lord curse you, so that we can now hear, may the Lord bless you. Someone wrote that Jesus took the malediction we deserve so we could receive the benediction that we don't deserve. The book of Hebrews and the author's benediction is, to, is a call to be faithful unto death. That's what this book is all about. That, yes, Jesus is better. That's what we title the sermon, and that is a great name for the sermon because Jesus is better than anyone or anything that you can ever imagine. But the result of that statement, Jesus is better, is for us to live faithful unto death. And when we heed this call to be faithful unto death, what we know is that as our faithful God of peace, who will ultimately carry us all the way home, even when we're unfaithful. Today, in closing out this beautiful letter, letter, the author has closing words that will anchor us, I pray, in God's peace. And he has a prayer for us that we would strive to please God by doing his will for his glory and by his power. That we would strive to please him by doing his will for his glory and by his power. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, skip down to verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Before the author expresses his hope for his audience, which includes me and you, he explains how it is the eternal triune God, how how the eternal triune God is a God of peace. And the God of peace is the most common description of God in the entire New Testament. And if you're here with us this morning, and you do not have that inner peace that you're trying to find in work, in relationships, in certain coping mechanisms, I'm here to tell you that you will never find it outside of a relationship with the risen Christ. And Christian, you have found lasting 
peace in Jesus. You have found you have you have peace with God. But still there are times, are there not, when we lack peace? In this world, there's trouble. And the author's going to speak to us and remind us of how it is that we receive peace with God and how it is that we can live in peace in the midst of a world that is in chaos. But God of peace is the most common description of God in the New Testament benedictions. The Apostle Paul signs off on six of his letters pointing to the God of peace. So the question is, what makes God the God of peace? And the author here of Hebrews tells us in part what makes God the God of peace in verse 21. He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. And I'm going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But first look at what peace is and why we need it. It may sound rhetorical, but let's take a look at what is peace and why do we need it. God's peace is shalom in the Old Testament, and it's irene in the New Testament. And they have similar meanings. The peace of God is the great promise of God to God's people. It's a great promise of God throughout Scripture. True peace, lasting peace, is not simply the absence of conflict. It's taking what is broken and restoring it to wholeness or completeness. Job in Job 5.25 said his tents are in a state of shalom because none of his flock was missing. His flock was complete. And when something is missing, we need peace. We need shalom. Proverbs tells us that to heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom or peace to that relationship. When a relationship is no longer in alignment, we need God's peace. When God's people were held captive by the evil Babylonian empire, Jeremiah spoke this word of peace over them in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know, I know the plans I have for you, describes the Lord. Plans of welfare or peace or shalom. Not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. You see, God's plan, plans for the exiles was welfare, shalom, not evil or calamity. And the ultimate peace he referred to that was prophesied would be found in a person. A person that Isaiah tells us in chapter 9, verse 7, that is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace would bring about a covenant of shalom or peace. That he would make all things right. He would bring wholeness and completeness. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to the earth to bring the peace of God to every tongue, tribe, and nation. That there's no one that is too far from the peace of God. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you're going to do tomorrow. That his peace is available for all who believe. Shortly before Jesus laid down his life, he announced to his disciples that he was going away. And they thought their world was falling apart. So he blessed them with these words in John 14, 26 through 28. Peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And this is a word for you and me today. We need peace when our life has fallen apart. Even though we have lasting peace that is found in faith, by faith in Jesus. Next, our author gives us a sentence that is pregnant with explanation as to how the eternal and triune God is a God of peace. We see that in verse 21. A God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord, actually in verse 20, I'm sorry. Where do we see that at? You see it before I do, you can yell it out. Thank you. Verse 20. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. The author lands the plane on this book, closes this book out by referring to Jesus as a shepherd who rose from the dead. And this is the first time in 13 chapters in the entire letter that it refers to Jesus as a shepherd, and it's the only explicit reference to our Lord's resurrection in the entire epistle. So my guess is it's important. The author referred to um, in this book, in chapter 7, he referred to the power of Jesus' indestructible life. And he mentioned that Jesus had an indestructible life that can't be destroyed so that he can always live and make intercession. He pointed to the work of the risen Christ, but this is the first time our author explicitly announces Jesus' resurrection when God brought him again from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is the demonstration that his sacrifice on the cross, his sacrificing of himself, his shed blood has been accepted by God. Jesus being raised from the dead is, is a sign that God has accepted his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And does anybody remember that fancy word that the Hebrew author uses to describe that? He calls it propitiation. It just means that Jesus' sacrifice was an acceptable sacrifice to a holy and just and wrath God. Wrathful God. He restored the wholeness, the relationship between humans and their creator. That's the point. Remember I talked about that last week? I had one friend actually challenge me on that. He says, what do you mean that Jesus, that the point of Jesus' death on the cross was not the forgiveness of our sins? You heard me say that last week. He died so that we could be forgiven, but he died so that we could be forgiven so that we could have a relationship with a holy and just God. Because God, the triune God, can have nothing to do with sin. So he needed to take our sin. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might become what? The righteousness of God. The holiness of God. So, so Jesus restored the wholeness, the relationship between humans and their creator. Jesus made peace with messed up human beings when he died and rose again from the dead. How did this happen? It tells us um, it tells us at the end of verse 20, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, he made peace by the blood of the cross. Not by the blood of the old covenant, confirmed by God with Israel on the basis of the law. You see, the old covenant was, was um, 
was dependent upon the faithfulness of God's people. The new covenant is dependent solely on the faithfulness of God. Praise be to God. That the new covenant is not dependent upon my behavior. The new covenant is not dependent upon whether I blow it today or don't blow it today. God pronounced a new and everlasting covenant that would not be dependent upon the faithfulness of the people, but upon the faithfulness of the promise-keeping God. And God uh, put forth this promise in Jeremiah 31. It was prophesied by Jeremiah. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This covenant was established by the shed blood of the good shepherd. And it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon him. In John chapter 10, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. The author of Hebrews here refers to Jesus not as the good shepherd, but as what? As the great shepherd, because this good shepherd laid down his life, but he took it up again. So he's the great and reigning shepherd. And this great shepherd is with us every step of the way. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because the great shepherd is with us. His rod and his staff bring us comfort. He protects us. He leads us. He keeps us. And because of the reality of the living great shepherd, we can have sure peace and know that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. We have peace with God, and we have the peace of God because of the blood of the eternal covenant that raised him from the dead, Jesus, our great shepherd. Do you want peace this morning? Be reminded of these truths. Jesus died and rose again from the dead. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. It's in him, the eternal son of God, that you are anchored and he will never let you go. This great shepherd upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3, and he cares about you and he intercedes for you even now. He is the great shepherd who will be faithful unto death. These are are eternal promises. He's a mediator of a better covenant. And it's a better covenant because it's an eternal covenant. The author expresses his hope for his Christian audience now in verse 21. (coughs) Now may the God of peace equip you, believer, with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The blood of this eternal covenant secures God's equipping, secures God's equipping us to do his will. And it also secures God working in us to make the equipping successful. He equips and empowers us 
to please us, uh, excuse me, to please him and do his will. He equips us and he empowers us to please him and do his will. First, let's look at the equipping. The author prays that God would equip believers with every good thing so that we may do his will. What does it mean to do God's will? I just listened to a little quick snippet by somebody that posted on Instagram the other day, and the guy did a pretty good job. With the will that, that, the, that the author's talking about is God's revealed will. The will that we see in his word, not his hidden will, not who should I marry, where should I go on vacation, should I leave this job, take that job. That's that's not doing his will. He's not equipping us to know his hidden will. He's equipping us to do his revealed will as is laid out in the 66 books of the Bible. How would you summarize his will? If the author prays that God would equip believers for every good thing so that we may do God's will, what is God's will? It's, it's, the, it's the revealed word of God um, in these 66 books. But I think we can summarize his revealed will as holiness. He equips us with every good thing so that we can be holy, so that we can be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your holiness, your sanctification. Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in Him. In Ephesians 5.25-27, this great section on how husbands and wives are to live together and how husbands are to lay their lives down to their wives, he says this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, her the church, that he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without, blem- without, without blemish. You want to know what the will of God is? It's for you to be holy. And praise be to God that holiness is not a requirement to be a child of God. What's required for salvation is God's faithfulness. And the faith that he gives us to believe in his sacrifice on the cross. The work that he does between, um, the work that he does in cooperation with our will is to, um, in our efforts, is to make us holy between the altar of salvation and the door to eternity, which is death. Let me say it another way. The will of God is to live out who it is that he says you already are. You're already holy. That your sin has been cast away as far as the east is from the west. You've been washed as white as snow. He took your sin and he clothed you in his righteous robes. But we're to progressively live that way. In a fantastic book that we need to get on our bookshelf. It's called Union with Christ. We're reading in the PLI. It's by Rankin Wilborn. Rankin gives this <coughs> beautiful picture of sanctification, of 
holiness. And that, and he says that this, this whole picture of being clothed in, in Christ's righteousness is that over time we, let, we grow into that. It's like giving a five-year-old boy a shirt, a perfect shirt that is going to fit him perfectly when he becomes a man. And he puts that shirt on and he grows into it. Just a great picture of God's progressive sanctification. So the author's prayer for us in this benediction is to be equipped with every good thing to do God's will. The word equip here isn't what we would normally think of. It means to be restored, to fix what is broken, to mend Matthew uses, uses this word to describe fishermen repairing their nets. Paul uses it in Galatians 6 as someone being restored spiritually. This word is used as describing the setting of a broken bone or repairing a dislocated limb. I was trying to think of an example of what it might be of, of, of what this word might be in our life today. Uh, my wife is out of town. She's out of town. She left town on Thursday. She gets back Wednesday. And I've never like realized I could eat so much cereal in like two and a half days. And I've got to admit to you this. I, I confessed to somebody at the gym the other day. I got married at age 22. My wife was 20. I'm in college. I never did my laundry. I'm never, I was the oldest of seven. I had six younger siblings to do my laundry. And my wife's out of town. Don't judge me. And I've got clothes that are dirty that I need to wear. So I had to call her and say, where's the soap? What do I put the washer on? And I did laundry. And I digress. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. And then I put them in the dryer. And I had to call her. And she gave me the settings. And about 45 seconds later, she goes, wait, you didn't put this, what she named the shirt, this flowery shirt in there, did you? I said, I did. She says, it's cotton, it'll shrink, take it out. And I did. Here's the point. I'm watering plants. I don't garden either. I pick raspberries and blackberries, and I put them in my mouth. I eat the tomatoes and the cucumbers. And I love watching my wife work in the garden. She likes, before you judge me there too, she loves being in the garden. It's not, it's not, it's a, it'd be a, it's sacrificial love for me. It's a labor love for her. So I was reminded of bindweed. Do you know what bindweed is? It's these, it's these angry, evil weeds that wrap around. It wraps around it. It doesn't just like grow up. It tries to choke the life out of it. And so, I was pulling bindweed, mainly off of my raspberries and my blackberries. That's the main thing I care about. And what I was doing is I was equipping the plants to grow in a healthy manner by untangling them from that which binds them. 
So the author prays that God would mend and heal his people so that we can do his will. That he would take away our fear. That he would give us peace. That he would give us an increasing desire to live for his will and not our own will. That he would enable us to lay aside every sin and weight that so easily wraps around us, entangles us. These are some of the good things that he equips us with. He puts us back together daily so that we can do his will. He's also given us other good things to help us do his will. And these other good things are means of grace that enable us to please him and do his will. Things like the word and his spirit and this weekly gathering and Christian community throughout the week. And we're going to talk about those in just a couple of minutes. But the author's prayer moves from equipping us to do his work to empowering us to do that which is pleasing in his sight. What's pleasing in his sight? Well, what's pleasing in his sight is when we do his will. But I would take it a step further. It's when we joyfully and willfully want to please him. By doing his will. And how do we do his will? Through Jesus, it says. Through Jesus. Towards the end of verse 21. We can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. And how can we do all things? It's because we are in Christ. And being in Christ, union with Christ, this is a doctrine that isn't talked about a ton. But Paul uses the words in Christ over 150 times in the New Testament to describe our relationship with the living God. Brothers and sisters, you are in Christ. You have died with him. You were buried with him. You've been raised from the dead with him. You are forever anchored to him. All he has is yours. You've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Everything that Jesus has, everything that Jesus is the heir of, you you have the same inheritance waiting for you. Our union with Christ and all of its benefits are secure. There's nothing we need to do to improve it. Our our union is what it is. We've died, we've been buried, and we've been raised with Christ. But our communion, I'm going to differ between our union and communion, our communion with the living God can grow old and cold. It's It's in the soil of deeper communion with the triune God that our desire and his power meet. Our desire, our labor, and his power meet to enable us to please him by doing his will. We have, there's dual responsibilities. We have a responsibility, and God has a responsibility. And Paul talks about these dual responsibilities in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. And I'm sorry, I don't have any um, scriptures on the screen. That's me. That's on me. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved Christians, as you have always obeyed, so now, 
not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's work for the Christian to do. We're not saved by works. We don't earn our salvation, but we work out our salvation. And one of the ways that we do that is by desiring to please God and doing His will. So as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pleasing God by doing the will of God requires work, and it also, de- it also requires dependence upon God to work in us. The Christian walk presents a tension as we hear the words throughout Scripture, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find what? Rest. And then at the same time, there's a call to pick up our cross and follow him. Jesus describes this shared responsibility um, in our spiritual progress using the word abide in John 15. Abiding is a posture of reliance for care and might I say even survival like branches depending upon a vine which is exactly the context in which Jesus uses this word in John 15, 4-5. Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in me as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. For apart from me, what? You can do nothing. Nothing of any good. Nothing that's lasting. Over the years, I've used a sailing example to describe our, our submitting primarily to the Spirit of God. But I'm going to use it to make a point here today. The Christian life is like a sailboat in waters where the empowering wind of God's grace is always blowing. The, the Spirit of God, the empowering grace of God is always blowing. Our job is to step into it, to catch it, if you will. The Christian life is not a raft where we just sit back and drift along. And it's also not a rowboat where we white-knuckle the rows through the tribulations of life. I want to continue with this illustration But first, I want to say that this sailboat of the Christian life, you you are a sailboat, I'm a sailboat, give me grace in this illustration. It's our union with Christ. This sailboat has an anchor. And the anchor won't let you drift away. The anchor is our being in Christ. We are bound to him, and he will never let us drift away. So, If the wind is blowing and we're on a sailboat and there's mass, how do we draw the sails in order to abide in Christ? Richard Foster defines this drawing of the sails as spiritual disciplines. (coughs) He further defines it this way. He says, God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving His grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. 
so that he can make us holy, so that he can enable us to do his will and to please him. And these means of raising the sail alone don't change us. None of the means of grace change us. But they put us in a place of communion with God where he can change us, where he can work in and through us, as Paul says in Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me just mention four means of raising the sails. First is God's word. The first means of raising the sail is to read God's word and to sit under sound teaching of God's word. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is living and active because a living Christ Going back to chapter 1, verse 2, the living Christ actively speaks through his word to those who are united to him. The second means of raising the sail is prayer. And the point of prayer is not to get something. The point of prayer is to get more of someone. The real reward of prayer is communion with God. And only those who are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection can have communion with God. But if you're united with him by faith, his door is always open. He has an open door policy. His ear is always inclined to you. Whether you come to him for the 50th time or the first time with something. His eyes are always on you. His arms are always open to you. The author of Hebrews encouraged us in Hebrews 4 to draw near to the throne of grace with what? With confidence. Knowing that Jesus went as a forerunner. That the veil has been torn. And that he wants us to come to him. It's a common prayer that I pray on my knees most mornings because I have this sailboat picture in my head every day. I said, Lord, would you give me the strength and the courage and the humility to raise the sails of submission to your spirit? Would you help me walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh? Will you help me today to live out your will and not my will? The next means of raising the sail is this right here. You're putting yourself in a place where the Spirit of God can equip you. The author of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 10, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. God's dwelling place, I said this a few weeks ago in a sermon, God's dwelling place has a congregational shape. This weekly gathering is a time and a place for us to draw near to God by drawing near to a spirit-filled people. That God is in this place because you're in this place. God is not necessarily in this place on Monday morning at 7 because his people aren't here yet.
in the final means of raising the sail, there's, there's, there's others. These are the ones that were highlighted in the book of Hebrews. We not only gather weekly with the saints, but we live in relational community with one another throughout the week. Not because we have to, but because we need to. He says in Hebrews chapter 3, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And what he's saying here is that any of us and all of us are prone to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we need the encouragement and the fellowship of other believers to come alongside us. These sail-raising disciplines are not a one-time experience. They're disciplines designed for you to abide in Christ and to commune with the living God on an ongoing basis. This is where the joyful and peaceful Who wrote these notes? Our union never changes. Our union with Christ never changes. His, his anchor never comes loose. He promises to never leave you nor forsake you. But our communion with him does ebb and flow. The goal is communion with the one whom you are united to. But as we know if we're honest that there can be a gap between the forensic reality of our union and our present experience of our communion. Like any relationship that you want to develop, you must invest time and do certain things to enhance the priority of that relationship. I've been married to my wife for 42 years. And when we're not connecting in all the glorious ways that God has given us to connect, we're not exercising living out those means of grace in the context of marriage, our communion with one another suffers. I've always got the reminder of our union, other than these six days when I'm doing my own laundry, But I've got to foster our communion, my communion with her. The goal in my marriage has never been to stay together. The goal has been communion. The goal has been intimacy. The goal has been relationship. So Christians, we must draw the sail repeatedly and habitually or we won't move. You won't be able to please nor do God's will. And when we're not moving and we're not pleasing God, we're not submitting to Him, we're not doing His will, you won't experience the joy and peace and beauty of communion with Christ. And then the author closes it off in chapter 13, 21. He reminds us of whose glory we live for. He says, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. He's referring to the God of peace, the triune God, the one who raised the great shepherd from the dead. Jonathan Edwards wrote that true human happiness and peace cannot be found or experienced apart from God's glory. Therefore, God's glory and human flourishing are one and the same. Do you want the peace of God to reign in your life? There is a lack of peace in the church today. Not just this church, but I'm talking about in the hearts and heads and minds of people that are united to the living Christ. And the reason that we lack peace is because we have a shallow and hollow communion with our God. So do you, wanna, you want peace to reign in your life? And this, so this peace, we'll close here, is found in our abiding communion with our faithful God where he equips us with every good thing to do his will. And when we joyfully and willfully strive to please him by doing his will, he is glorified in and through our lives. Amen? Let's pray. <coughs> God, thank you for this text, this benediction. And uh, Lord, I thank you that, that you, Lord Jesus, were faithful unto death. That you lived the perfect life that no human being was able to live. And that you, the perfect one, the one without sin, went to the cross willingly and took our sin upon yourself. So I thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that you who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And Lord, I pray that because of your faithfulness unto the end, and because by faith we are united to you in your death, burial, and resurrection, I pray that you would providentially and spiritually, through the Spirit of God, equip us to be able to please you by doing your will. And I pray that that equipping would be, would be um, rooted in the soil of communion with the triune God. And I thank you that, that that's the end. That that's why you died. So that we can have communion with you. And that out of that communion, you would be glorified by our willing and joyful, pleasing you by doing your will. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And all of God's people said.